My text for this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, not Matthew. Sorry about that, Jonathan. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verses 24 uh, through verse 30. Uh, But before we come to God's word, let's come before him in prayer. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit to us to do that gracious work again, to open up your word to us, to apply that word to our hearts, to use that word to inspire us to lives of godliness and lives of great joy in you. That's what we desire as we come to your word this morning, Father. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the woman that we meet in this text is a refreshing picture of faith after what was a rather disturbing picture of hard-heartedness. She's a refreshing picture of faith after a disturbing, a disturbing picture of hard-heartedness. Now, I don't know if you remember, but last week we looked at an argument that went on between the Lord Jesus and a group of men called the Pharisees. And we saw that these Pharisees were opposed to Jesus. These Pharisees were antagonistic towards Jesus. Throughout the course of that conflict, we saw that the hearts of those Pharisees were hardened towards the Lord Jesus. They did not trust him, they did not want to listen to him, and they certainly did not love him. But as we look at the story that Mark tells right after that story, right after that story of the Pharisees, I, I think it's safe to say that we're struck by a contrast. While the Pharisees did not trust Jesus, we find in this story, a woman who is the very picture of trust and faith. And so this woman offers a refreshing picture of faith after the disturbing picture of a lack of faith that we saw with the Pharisees. And so I want us to begin this morning by simply considering this woman. I want us to look at what she did, and I want us to look at um, how she did it. I want us to listen to what she said. And I want us to take note of what that says about her and what that says about the Lord Jesus. And as we make our consideration, I want us to see that this woman was a woman of persistent prayer and that her persistent prayer was based on a persistent faith. So persistent prayer based on a persistent faith. We see in our text that when Jesus had retired to an area called Tyre and Sidon, This woman had somehow learned about his whereabouts, and she had sought him out. She had gone to the house where he was staying. And when she found him, she begged him earnestly to heal her daughter. She prayed to Jesus for something that was profoundly important to her. Now, that word pray has undergone some shifts within the English language, but at the very heart of that word pray is simply the idea of asking somebody for something that you want, earnestly entreating somebody for something that you want. And so this woman's prayer is a bit different than our prayer because she actually has the physical Lord Jesus right in front of her. But at the heart of the thing, she's doing the same thing that we do when we pray, right? We're asking the Lord for something. And so here we see that this woman was praying to Jesus. She was entreating Jesus. She was begging Jesus to heal the daughter that she loved. Now, when Jesus responds to her prayers, it almost seems at first glance that he's trying to discourage her, right? It's a rather interesting comment that Jesus makes in response to her prayers, but she keeps on praying. She keeps on asking Jesus 
for the thing that she desires deeply. She prays and prays until the thing that she desires has been given to her. And by the end of the story, we see that her prayers had not been in vain, but rather that her prayers were answered by Jesus and her daughter was delivered from the demon that was oppressing her. And so this is a picture of persistent prayer, a picture of someone praying and praying and praying. And it's a picture that should greatly encourage us. Some of you may know of that verse from the book of James, uh, chapter 5, verse 16. James, the brother of Jesus, writes, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Some of you might have memorized it in the old King James. The prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You know, maybe some of the older folks in the crowd <laughs> use the old Elizabethan language. And so James reminds us in his book that the prayer of a righteous person is a remarkably powerful thing. And as we consider the prayer of this woman from Syrophoenicia, we see that the words of James actually play out in real time. We see that the woman's daughter was delivered from a demon and made well because of her fervent and persistent prayer, right? The, the prayer of this righteous woman availed much, right? Much came because of her persistent prayer. And you know, we see throughout the whole Bible that God is pleased to work through the prayers of his people. And he's pleased to work through the prayers of people who put their trust in him. God does not always seem to respond to our prayer immediately. And sometimes God doesn't seem to respond to our prayer in the way that we would expect. But in his word, he encourages us to persist and to persist and to persist in praying. You know, so many of the great examples of the faith, so many of the great heroes of the faith were great men and women of prayer who had given their lives to the work of praying. The Lord Jesus himself was and is someone who understands and believes in the great power of prayer. The Lord Jesus himself continues to dedicate himself to the work of prayer. He prayed much during his earthly ministry, but he also continues to pray to God the Father as our great high priest on our behalf. In the book of Hebrews, we see that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Intercession meaning intercessory prayer, right? Jesus prays to the Father. He asks the Father for those things which his people need. And Jesus, because he's not only a righteous man, but the righteous man, the righteous one, always receives a positive answer to his prayers. One of my great heroes is a Scottish minister named Robert Murray McChain. And he says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Right? What a beautiful sentiment. The Lord Jesus is praying for you. And I wish I could hear those prayers, and I know one day I will. But if you could hear them, you would be greatly emboldened. Jesus is persistently and consistently praying for his people. And he's doing so according to the one perfect will that he shares with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And so this is all to say that persistent and undaunted prayer is encouraged by God through his word. In his great wisdom, God answers our prayers in his good time and in his good way. But this should not discourage us or dissuade us. We should continue praying. We should persist in praying. Some of you know of the great 
parable of the persistent widow, right, who persistently asked for justice, asked for justice, asked for justice. And Jesus commends the woman in that parable. Now, this topic of prayer and persistent prayer raises a lot of questions. Perhaps your experiences with prayer have sometimes left you baffled or discouraged or confused. Perhaps you felt that your prayers are not being answered. Perhaps you feel like you ask for one thing and God gives you the exact opposite thing. Well, what's striking about the woman that we're considering right now is that at no point in her interaction with Jesus does she seem to be baffled or discouraged or confused. She's earnestly begging Jesus to save her daughter, but it doesn't seem like she was unhinged in any way. When Jesus makes his comment to her, she responds with clear and pretty remarkable words. She responds pretty well. And so what I want to suggest to you this morning is that this dear woman that we're considering in this story, the Syrophoenician woman, was actually a very good theologian. She was a remarkably, a remarkably astute theologian. Now what I mean when I say that this woman was a very good theologian is not that she had many degrees from the best theological colleges, nor do I mean that she was a great biblical scholar with a vast library in her living room. Now what I mean when I say that this woman was a good theologian is that her beliefs and her understandings about God were true. She had grasped accurately and clearly that which was true about God and that which was true about his character. And specifically in the instance that we're looking at, she grasped that which was true about God the Son, the Lord Jesus. And so we see that her persistent prayer life was actually based and fueled by a very good theology, a very good understanding of who God was. We see in the first instance that this woman understood Jesus to be someone who could answer her prayer, someone who could answer her request. And moreover, she understood Jesus to be someone who could deal effectively with an issue that others could not. Right? The thing that she came asking the Lord Jesus for was deliverance for her daughter from a demon. And I imagine there was other so-called solutions out there. But this woman seemed to trust that Jesus could effectively deal with what was wrong. She had a good hope that Jesus was somebody with authority and power, someone who had the authority and the power to liberate her daughter. And so her mind and her heart would have been filled with simple but very true theological statements. Statements like, Jesus is powerful. Jesus has authority. Jesus can deliver. Jesus can set free. Jesus will listen to me. Jesus will hear my prayer. All of these little statements are simple, but they're also extremely important. They're rock-solid theology. When our faith in the realities described by these statements begins to slip, our apprehension of who God is begins to slip. When we fail to keep the main thing the main thing, when we fail to grasp these basic theological truths, we lose sight of who God is. And as Dr. J.A. Packer once wrote, where truth fails, life fails. And so our lives begin to break down and our lives begin to fall apart when we lose our sense of who God is and when we lose our sense of what his character is. But in the life of the woman that we're looking at this morning, we see that a simple but a very good theology meant that her life drastically improved. Her good theology meant that she could persist in prayer. We also see in this woman's response to Jesus' comment that she was somebody who understood the covenant promises of God. 
which in a way is pretty highfalutin theology. And so this is to say that she knew and understood that the people of Israel were God's chosen people. They were the people who God had delivered his promises to. And this point is important because this woman is a Gentile. Right? This woman is not an Israelite. She's not a part of the chosen people of God. And so Mark actually goes out of his way to help us know that she is a Gentile. Right? Mark writes, now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And so this point is also important because Jesus highlighted the difference between the Gentiles and the Jews in the comment that he made in response to the woman's prayer. Right? Jesus says to the woman, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. Now in this comment, Jesus was making it clear that his ministry was initially for the sake of the Jewish people. Jesus' first order of business, as it were, was to bring the gospel to the Jewish people, and then after he had done that, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. But his main uh, order of business in the beginning was simply to bring the gospel to the Jews. And so this is reflected in what the Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Then he says, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And so when Jesus made his comment to the woman, it seems that he was testing her. He was proving her mettle, seeing how good her theology was, seeing how she stood up when he challenged her in this way. And being a good theologian, this woman says, she responds in fine form. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And so she begins by agreeing with Jesus' statement recognizing that the Jewish people were the chosen people of God who were in a covenant relationship with God. She knew that the Jewish people were the beneficiaries of certain mercies and certain graces because of the promises that God had specifically made to them. She knew that as a Gentile woman, she had no claim to the benefits of the covenant that God had made with his people. But she also knew that the Gentiles, the people who lived outside of the covenant with God, also throughout history had benefited from God's faithfulness to his people. She, know, she knew, to use her metaphor, that God's mercy spilled out over the table and into the rest of the world. That as the children were enjoying the promises that God had given them, as the Jews were enjoying the promises that God had given to them, almost extra mercy and extra grace poured over the sides of the table and benefited the Gentiles as well. Perhaps she even knew some of the stories of the Old Testament which showed God's blessing to the Gentiles. One of the interesting things to note about this story is that it bears some similarities to a story from the first book of Kings, chapter 17. There we find recorded the story of the prophet Elijah and we find recorded there that he raises uh, from the dead the son of a widow, right? And this widow is often called the widow of Zarephath because she lived in Zarephath. And she was a Gentile. And we, so we see that the prophet Elijah, who's similar to Jesus, um, was told specifically to go and serve the Jews, it turns aside from his ministry to the Jews for a moment to deal with a Gentile woman, to deal with a Gentile widow. And then we see later in his ministry, Jesus uses this example of the widow of Zarephath um, to rebuke the Jewish people. Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, 
when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus is saying, you had the benefit of Elijah's ministry for years and years and years, and you never took advantage of it. And so the only people who benefited from his ministry were a widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian. Right? Last week we looked at the fact that once again the Jewish people were rejecting the Savior that God had sent. Right? They were ungrateful children who wouldn't receive the meal that their good God was giving them. And so now we see that a Gentile is benefiting from the crumbs that fall off the table. And so we see it in this story. We see it in the story of the widow of Zarephath. And we see it in Jesus' words. All around we see this idea that God's promise is to his people Israel, but he's willing to shower his mercy broadly and to bless those, even those, who are outside of the covenant. And so the woman that we're talking about this morning knew this. She knew about the covenant, but she also knew that God was merciful. And this was her good theology. She was confident in the mercy of God. And so when she approached Jesus and offered up her prayer, she was depending on no covenant, but simply depending upon the character of God. This woman's profound hope when she went to Jesus was simply and purely that he was merciful. Right? All she's resting upon is the mercy of God. You could say that the mercy of God that she was depending upon was the uncovenanted mercy of God. Right? She had received no promise. Her people had received no promise that God would be merciful to them. But she knows who God is and she knows what he's like. And so she casts her life upon his mercy. Even though it hasn't been promised, she knows that by his very character, God is merciful. And so this dynamic, this reality, this reality of God's mercy, is something that we recognize every Sunday when we come to the Lord's Supper together. Every Sunday we pray a prayer together, which is called the Prayer of Humble Access. Now you might not know that the prayer has that title, the Prayer of Humble Access, but we pray it every Sunday, so it might be familiar to you. We pray together, we do not presume to come to this your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose character is always to have mercy. And so more than anyone else in the Bible, I can imagine this Syrophoenician woman praying that prayer that we pray Sunday by Sunday, not least because her words have been incorporated into that prayer, right? The language of not being worthy to gather up the crumbs under the table comes from this woman's comment. And so it teaches us not to commend ourselves and not to commend anything that we do when we come to the table, but simply to cast ourselves upon the mercy of God, trusting that his character is sure, that his character is steadfast, that it's always his character to show mercy. And so friends, this is good and solid theology. The reality of God's mercy, the reality of God's grace, looms large in good and accurate theology. And a theology which does not recognize God as being merciful and gracious is not good theology. It's heresy, right? If we don't believe that God is merciful, if the mercy of God has not been incorporated into our theology, then it's not Christian theology. 
right? Christian theology recognizes, celebrates, and worships God because he's merciful. And so I hope that you can see that this woman's good theology, this woman's clear grasp of who God is, was something that fired and fueled her prayer life. Underneath this woman's persistent prayer was a knowledge that God was merciful. And underneath this woman's persistent prayer was a knowledge that God was merciful even to Gentile women like herself. And so we see in the life of this woman a principle which applies to all the other aspects of our Christian lives. What we believe about God and what we believe about the character of God affects the way that we live our lives. Our internal theology, those things which we actually believe in our hearts about God, either encourage us or discourage us to do certain things. For example, if you believe that God is weak and cruel, it's going to be awfully hard to pray to him. Because if he's weak, he can't do anything about it. And if he's cruel, then that which he does do about it isn't going to be very good. But on the other hand, if you believe that God is powerful and kind, then you're going to want to pray. Because you'll believe that God can do something about it. And you'll believe that God does something good about it. Matthew Henry, the famous Bible commentator, once wrote, Corrupt customs are best cured by rectifying corrupt notions. Corrupt customs are best rectified, best cured by rectifying corrupt notions, right? And so if our customs have gone wonky, it's often because our understanding of who God is has gone wonky. Our notions of who God is has gone wonky. And so I might paraphrase, paraphrase Mr. Henry and say that corrupt Christian living is best cured uh, by rectifying corrupt notions about God. And you know, this is something I, I mentioned it in the announcements. This is something that the women of our church are doing and the women of our church are learning as they go through Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. Together, they're learning about the character of Jesus, the reality of who Jesus is. And based on that, I have a good hope that as they learn more about who Jesus is, Jesus will enable them to live lives of beautiful godliness, right? But it'll be because of who, it'll be because of what they apprehend about Jesus. And so I wonder what aspects of the Christian life each and every one of you might be struggling with at this point in time. I wonder what seems to not be quite going right. I wonder what doesn't seem to be quite working. And so, dear brother and dear sister, I'd just like to say that it's a good idea. It's always a good idea to come back to the character of God. It's always good to remind ourselves of who he is and what he's done. Perhaps in the next few days, you can open your Bibles, find some time when you can be by yourself, open your Bibles, and pray that the Holy Spirit would show you places in your life where you've forgotten or where you've misunderstood the character of God. And ask the Spirit to apply those truths to your heart in a new and fresh way. Ask the Holy Spirit to convict you about any bad theology, about any inaccuracies that you might have about God, and then ask for the grace to get a better theology, a better grasp of who God is. Now, I don't want you to think that the theology of the Syrophoenician woman was absolutely perfect, but I do want you to see that at the very least, in this instance, she had some mighty good theology, which enabled her to endure, persist, answer well, and then enjoy the mercy of God. The truth this woman believed about God is what produced great faith in her. She trusted God because she knew what was true about God. 
Her persistent prayer was based on a persistent faith that was based on a consistent theology. And so I hope you see that persistent faith is enabled by consistent theology. Theology which is consistent with the reality and the character of God. Right? Persistent faith, the ability to live a long life of godliness, is based upon a consistent theology. A theology which is consistent with who God is and his character. Now one more thing that I want us to consider about this woman is this curious mixture that she has of both humility and boldness. It's a rare thing indeed to find these two character traits displayed at the exact same time. On the one hand, we see that this woman is humble. She knows that she has no claim to Jesus' mercy. She doesn't commend herself in any way. She simply pleads with the Lord and asks him for the one thing which she desperately desires. And then on the other hand, she's bold. Right? She's willing to approach the Lord Jesus, willing to seek him out and find him while he's retiring. And she's willing to ask him over and over again for the thing which she deeply desires. And so what we might ask produces this curious mixture of both humility and boldness. How can someone both be humble and bold before the Lord? Well, the answer is the mercy of God. Mercy, on the one hand, is profoundly humbling. But on the other hand, mercy is profoundly emboldening. Mercy, on the one hand, shows us that everything we have is undeserved. Even our existence, our very existence, is a gracious gift from God that we don't deserve. But then, on the other hand, mercy shows us that God delights to give undeserved gifts. And so, as Christians who have learned, and as Christians who are learning what God is like, our natural state is to be both humble and bold. Humble in the sense of never thinking that we deserve any of it but bold in the sense that we know God wants to give it. And so we go to him boldly saying, Lord, I know I don't deserve this, but I'd like to have it. And I know you delight to give it to your people. And so I think that that's a beautiful place to be. This mixture of of humility and boldness allows us to be grateful through anything, knowing that all we've been given is a gift that we haven't deserved but it also enables us to come before the Lord with anything and everything that's upon our hearts, right? to pour out whatever we want to him. And so maybe you can think about these truths when you come to the Lord's table a little bit later. And I hope that you realize that I am, you are bold enough to come to the table and to take the bread and to take the cup, not because we deserve these great gifts from God, but because God has mercifully given them to us. And so the gifts that we're going to partake of later are gifts given in mercy. And so as you come to the table and as you live your Christian lives, do so humbly but also do so boldly, knowing that you don't deserve it, but that God delights to give it. Amen.